Crosstracks case management system. That is what we are talking about today. Are you using a case management system? What are you waiting for? If you don't use a case management system, you really need to look into implementing that into your business regimen. I've been at it with Crosstracks now a little over a year, and it's just been a game changer for my business. They are SOC 2 certified, SOC 2 Type 2 certified. If you don't know what that means, it means that their encryption system is second to none. And you have to go through a whole screening process to figure out uh, if you can even qualify for that, and they have. So you know with certainty your data is being protected. I don't think there's another case management system out there that offers that same ability to have the SOC 2 Type 2 certification. As you guys know, I've been uh, you know singing the praises of Crosstracks, and uh, I really believe in this product, and I believe you should check it out. Contact Brad, contact Pat, uh, one of the team members over there, and see if it's right for you. Crosstracks case management system, check it out today. Are you overwhelmed with your current case log? Could you use some help with your skip trace assignments? With Merlin Locate Services, rather than adding staff, you can add an entire skip trace department of licensed private investigators who specialize in skip tracing. Check out MerlinLocate.com today. When you work with Merlin Locate Services, you bring on a valuable experience and trusted extension to your team. Want full data access without a site inspection? IRB Search gives you full social security numbers, dates of birth, up-to-date contact info, and so much more without the inconvenience or cost of an inspection. As an added bonus, you can access IRB data on any device in any location. You'll always have the best data anytime, anywhere. Visit irbsearch.com and use exclusive promo code PIPOD2021 for a free trial and 100 credits. Offer available for new and returning customers. Welcome to PI Perspectives. Today, we're changing it up just a little bit. Jim Nanos from PI Magazine and PI Gear has been teaching on surveillance assessments at recent conferences. Jim agreed to come on and give a recorded version of this teaching. This episode, no breaks. So please stick around to the end to hear from a few of our sponsors. And if you want to get the full experience of this episode, and I urge you to do so, check out the YouTube version with video to the slideshow. And you can see Jim and Matt in all their glory. We hope you enjoyed this version of Surveillance Assessments. So please welcome Jim Nanos and your host, Private Investigator Matt Spare. Here we are at the uh, next episode of PI Perspectives. This is Matt Spare, your host. Uh, today, we're going to try and do something a little bit different. I asked Jim Nanos from uh, PI Magazine and PI Gear to come on and uh, talk a little bit about pre-surveillance and just kind of give us a background on the work that you should be doing when you're looking to do surveillance or, or looking to gain information on an individual before you actually start an assignment. So, uh, Jim, I want to welcome you to the program. How are you? Matt, I'm doing fine. Thanks for having me. It's an honor to be part of the show. Yeah, we're going a little hybrid today, doing things a little different, but uh, we got to mix things up a bit. So uh, I feel like I haven't seen you in years, Jim. How are you? I know it's been like so long. <laughs> right. A couple of weeks <laughs> easily. So let's let's jump right into the topic. I know you wanted to share your screen. So for those that are actually watching the video of this, uh, they'll be able to see uh, shared screens. If you're listening to the podcast, we're, we're going to kind of describe as best as we can um, what we got on screen here. Uh, but Jim, why don't you go ahead and uh, share your screen there? 
And uh, there we go. All right. So surveillance assessments by uh, Jim Nanos. Thanks, Matt. So I'm going to, uh, I'll jump right into this. And uh, Matt, as we go along, feel free to hop in. And if we need to talk about anything, if I don't do a, a good job at explaining the slide, uh, please jump in. And for uh, the listeners that are joining us and the viewers, uh, Matt and I are from the, uh, the the Northeast, so we tend to talk quickly. So I apologize if I go rather quickly. It's just the nature of how we have to speak out here to get our points across. So we're going to be uh, going through this rather quickly. So uh, today the topic we're going to cover is surveillance assessments, and we'll get into a little bit about uh, what typically I do as a surveillance technician on most investigative cases that I do. So a little background on myself, and uh, Matt, you'll probably be able to maybe narrate this if you need to. Sure. Uh, let's see. So I'm a retired uh, police officer from the city of Wildwood, New Jersey. That's in the uh, southern part of the state. I was a police officer about 28 years, a detective sergeant. I handled major cases, everything, uh, small department, 50 man department. So you tend to handle everything from, you know, somebody uh, uh, stole my bicycle all the way up to the homicides and, and small departments should do everything. And that's pretty much what I did. Um, I'm a member of the U.S. Coast Guard Reserve. I've been a reservist for about 21 years now. Um, as a surveillance technician, uh, prior to me being a private investigator as a police officer, I worked undercover narcotics, and that's where I got the bulk of my surveillance work and surveillance training. Uh, I'm throwing a couple of pictures up here of me doing some undercover stuff in the past, and even one as me recently as a, a Hasidic in an area in New Jersey here. So as a surveillance technician, sometimes you have to dress the part and play different roles uh, as we go along. It's nice uh, also you got there. I got my yarmulke on. That's right, man. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so uh, as a, some of the other places I've worked uh, over my career is New Jersey Department of Homeland Security and Preparedness as an investigator doing counterterrorism work. And I was the director of corporate training and compliance for a, a large security company in Covenant Security. I was responsible for about 5,000 uh, armed and unarmed uh, security officers, professionals, uh, mainly dealing with their training and their corporate compliance as to what the rules were for the particular states that they worked in. And I am the owner of Apple Investigations. That's my personal uh, private investigation firm based out of Southern New Jersey. So my surveillance training uh, has been provided in the past by uh, the New Jersey State Police at the Basic Police Academy in Seagirt, New Jersey. I've been trained by the DEA, uh, the FBI, and probably one of the premier and absolutely hands down, in my opinion, the best surveillance detail out there and offers the best surveillance training anywhere is New York City Police Department. A lot of folks are, aren't aware that they have such a robust security detail and program, and it is just absolutely phenomenal. If you ever get the opportunity to take any classes related to security that's given to, by anyone uh, retired from New York City Police Department, it is absolutely fabulous. I've done some Army CID and Air Force OSI training also, and uh, of course, through the Coast Guard. So a couple shots uh, of me there. In case anybody did doubt it, I was the original Huggy Bear. Um, for those people looking at YouTube, you'll see I dressed like Huggy Bear before Huggy Bear and Snoop Dogg dressed like Snoop Dogg. So getting into the meat and the potatoes of the class. So as a surveillance technician, we have an ethical and professional conduct that we must follow. All surveillance and investigations must be conducted in an ethical and lawful manner. It is the investigator's responsibility to be familiar with all applicable federal state and local laws related to the conduct of investigations. That includes whether you're able to uh, record audio in certain situations if you're doing undercover work or whether you can't record audio in your state. In New Jersey, we're a one-party state, so 
we can record audio during covert contacts. Uh, there's some states you can't. It's your responsibility to check that and you really need to find out before you start doing those types of surveillance uh, jobs. As it relates to privacy, um, these are some rules that I think are best practices and what I follow with my private investigation firm. When it comes to privacy, there's some basic rules that I follow. Uh, I will not, or I, I like to say there's, uh, within a person's residence or other uh, private residences, you should not be doing surveillance. So you shouldn't covertly or pretext into somebody's house and try to do a surveillance detail in someone's house. That, that's just off limits for me. And it's it's something that could probably get you in trouble both legally and definitely when you take your case, if you should have to go to a deposition or a court hearing, uh, opposing counsel is really going to hit you hard on that if you were somehow to pretext your way into somebody's house and do some sort of surveillance. So within a person's residence or other private residence is just off limits for me when it comes to surveillance. Personally, I do not do surveillance within a privacy fenced in area or yard. And uh, the reason I throw this in there is I, I know a lot of folks that will say if they're outside in the backyard, they're free game. Um, I personally don't follow that. Uh, a privacy fence is exactly why it's named a privacy fence. I've gone to depositions where an attorney will pull up the six foot white vinyl fence and will say, you know, Mr. Nanos, what is this commonly referred to? And I have to say it's a privacy fence. And then I have to explain, or I may have to explain why I was taking photographs or video over a privacy fence. It's just something you should probably stay away from. Uh, privacy fenced in areas or yards that don't have like a chain link fence or a, um, a picket fence. If it's got the large white vinyl fence, I know it's very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, it's tempting to want to stick a camera over the fence or somehow get a position either in another building or in a tree. I mean, all kinds of crazy things happen where you're trying to get photos or video inside that backyard if someone's around a pool or playing in the backyard. It's just something I like to stay away from. Inside a bathroom, locker room, or changing room. I know folks that have called me for surveillance details and they'll say, I need you to go to the country club and follow this guy around and make sure you get him in, in, the, in the locker room where he may be talking about things. There's an expectation of privacy within, obviously, within a bathroom. Uh, I, I um, project that to locker rooms and changing areas. I, I just don't do video or surveillance in those rooms. Again, it, it may feel uh, tempting or you may be tempted because of sometimes folks have their, their guard down. They may talk a little bit or they may uh, move around differently inside what they perceive as a private area. But that's exactly right. They're perceiving, perceiving this as a private area. And it's just something that you should try to stay away from. Yeah, if you can. Inside a private club, private event, or a place where the public is not invited. I've often had cases where folks will, uh, attorneys or a client will call me up and say, hey, they're having an event. A wedding is something that comes to mind. We want you to get in there and try to get some video of the claimant dancing or interacting with somebody or who that person is with as far as date or escort wise. And it's just something I don't do. I will not go into a, a privately held event inside a club uh, or, or someplace where the public is not invited. Again, it just, just gets you it, possibly in a position where you don't wanna be. As an illustration, I did do a case recently where uh, there was an outdoor wedding at a public venue, actually uh, along the docks down here in Cape May, a restaurant that had a large dock outside and the entire wedding party was outside on a, um, on a dock posing for photographs. I had no problem with that. They were outside, I was in a public area um, where I could just walk up. I didn't have to go into the restaurant or be invited or have an uh, invitation. Uh, that would be okay. So every situation may be a little unique, 
you need to really give it some thought and, and think, am I able to be here legally? And how will I defend that? Maybe I'm using the air quotes here, but how do I defend that if I have to go to that deposition? How did I get my or find my way inside this building? Did I have to lie to somebody? And there may be nothing illegal about that, but it definitely may put you in a tight spot. So you want to consider that when you're looking to do surveillance inside a, a private venue. A restaurant's a little bit different. You go in, you, you purchase dinner, you're sitting at a table. I'm okay with that. I don't see a problem with that. But I go back to the private wedding or the private event, like a graduation uh, event or, or something along that those lines where you have to be invited. Not anybody from the street can just walk in and sit down and grab a table. Uh, this is one that I, I often get feedback or, or blowback from uh, the folks that are out there doing workers' comps. And I do worker comp cases also. I will not do surveillance inside or within a medical facility. Um, such as a doctor's office or a hospital. I stay away from office visits, uh, IMEIs or IMEs, uh, therapy and rehabilitation. I have no problem following somebody from his residence or her residence to the doctor's appointment, but I will not go inside and try to sit in the lobby and get video or audio of that person filling out paperwork or interacting with staff or just trying to uh, make some sort of contact with that person. Again, um, although there may not be nothing technically illegal about going into the doctor's office and sitting in the public lobby and, and obtaining video. It's just something as, as a best practice, I don't do. I stay out of that. I'll sit in the parking lot and I'll get all the video I can of him or her going in and coming out, but I just will not go inside and try to get that, that tempting video from inside the doctor's office. It, it just doesn't feel right. You're going to have to explain uh, so, that. When so, you so Jim, even the, um, the waiting area, you, you would stay away from that? I do. Um, and, and again, I, I don't think there's anything legally that says you can't go in there. Obviously, there's HIPAA rules. And I always get into that, um, I'm going to say argument, but discussion with folks where if I'm sitting there and I'm recording and that person happens to discuss something with medical staff and it's recorded, it, it just gets in that one of the gray areas, Matt. And, and what I like to do is I just stay out of there altogether. Yeah, I'll video with the, him or her with the other. In. I'm sorry, with, with the other people that are in there too, you know, like you got to be careful of that to picking up their conversations. Um, That's correct. Or just showing that they're in there for treatment because depending on the type of doctor's office or the type of treatment that that place uh, gives, and I'm thinking uh, or provides, I'm thinking maybe like a drug rehabilitation center. If you're in there and I'm trying to show the claimant is in there at a drug rehab and I happen to videotape five other people in there, the inference could easily be drawn that they're in there for some sort of drug treatment. And again, is there anything technically illegal about it? Probably not. But as a best practice, I just stay clear of, of doctor's offices inside and I just won't get myself in trouble. And if I do get a client that says, I want you to do that and I and they press me for it, I just tell them I'm, I'm probably not your guy because it's just a company policy um, that myself and Jack Russell have developed over the years. And yeah. we just don't do it. It's just, it's just a recipe, I think, for disaster. Gotcha. Uh, I can extend that to the next um, line there, which is displayed, which is attorneys. Um, I will not follow somebody into an attorney's office, whether it's a one person office or a large corporate setting with, with a, a dozen attorneys working out of the same office. Again, I, I just think that's pr uh, pushing the envelope. I'll record them or video or follow them to the attorney's office from the attorney's office, but I won't follow them inside the office. Again, it's just, it, it's just something that doesn't feel right. And I think you have to do some, um, explaining if you have to go to a deposition. And again, I don't think you uh, there's anything illegal with it, but it just doesn't feel right. If it doesn't feel right, just don't do it. When in doubt, seek legal guidance. Um, almost all the cases we're doing, we're probably going to be working with counsel. 
Um, and when in doubt, ask counsel. And I like to ask counsel via email so that there's a record of what counsel advises me to do or not to do. And there's some sort of a paper trail that I've asked the question. So when in doubt, seek legal guidance. And I don't mean you have to go out and retain an attorney, run it past the attorney who's handling the case for you or who you're working for. So with all that stuff done, the disclaimers, let's get into who does surveillance work. Every private investigator performs surveillance work to some level. A lot of folks out there, a lot of PIs out there that we come across, they, they say, I don't do surveillance work. They don't even realize they are doing surveillance work. Surveillance work uh, uh, can, is rather broadly defined, and we'll go over a couple uh, uh, bullet points here, but obviously there's what I typically call the full-blown physical surveillance. That's when somebody retains me to go out and follow somebody for a day, a, a, a period of time, or uh, four hours or an extended period of time. Follow him or her for a week and get a pattern in their life, and let's get a snapshot of what they're doing, activity checks for a week. That's typically what I do. I do full-blown surveillances, but there are a lot of other folks out there, PIs, that will say, well, that's not what I do. I'm not a surveillance guy. I don't do any surveillance. But they may do a neighborhood check. They might do a car and asset check. They say, I don't do surveillance, but I drive past somebody's house and I check to see what cars are out there. Or maybe I'll go by and get a couple photographs of the house or if there's a boat in the yard because somebody's retained me to do some asset verification or asset identification. That's a form of surveillance. You may not think it is because it doesn't say surveillance, uh, but it is surveillance. You're going by and you're obtaining information uh, from a location and you're probably going to document that or use it somehow in your case. So it, it absolutely is a form of surveillance. Uh, this is what I call the easy home checks. Um, I'll get a client or call me up and say, look, I need you to go by and say, is he home or find out, is he home? And that typically is go by and look and see if there's a car there or, or when the car comes and goes. Um, and you don't realize that's that's a surveillance detail. Uh, attorneys will call me and say, look, I just want to try to figure out what this guy's work schedule is. Can you just do some drive-bys and see when is he home? Uh, that is surveillance. Again, drive-bys, I get a lot of clients that will call me up and say, I just need you to go by, drive by the house, get me a, a layout of what the place looks like. Is it a seasonal home? Is the house even still there? Um, unfortunately, a lot of us all tend to rely on Google Earth, and sometimes that information is dated. Uh, so I'll have attorneys will call me up and say, I just need you to go by. This is a case out of Philadelphia or New York City. Just drive by and, and get me a couple photos of the house or the business. And I want to get uh, some documentation of what signage is on the business. Who's actually advertising on the business? It's a drive by. A lot of folks will view that as, oh, it's just a drive by. But it is a form of surveillance. Surveillance camera deployments. I do drop cameras and I do covert surveillance and remote access cameras. And that is obviously that surveillance, but you're going to have to do some pre-surveillance before you go out and place a camera. And we'll talk about what I use as a best practice in a process uh, in a few minutes. And finally, I do get folks that will call me up and we'll have complex process service where somebody's ducking process or it's a high profile process service, um, mostly related to businesses. And you just can't go up and knock on a door and expect, you know, that celebrity or that sports um, athlete or figure to answer the door and have their hand out ready to take a service. So you may have to do some sort of surveillance ahead of time to find out when is the best time uh, to try to serve that paper. Um, I go back to a case where um, I had a client call me up and, and without disclosing any, any names, they wanted me to serve a sports figure who was in Atlantic City uh, boxing. And this is a, uh, they were under the impression I could just walk in, buy a ticket, like walk up to the side of the ring and hand the guy a piece of paper while he's in the ring. Nice. And I said, it doesn't work that way. You know, there's going to have to be a time and place to do it professionally. 
and and I have to do it as a professional. I just can't walk up when the guy's in the ring and throw a piece of paper in the ring and you know yell, "You're served," and walk away. Uh, they were under the impression that that's what I would do, and and I wouldn't do that. And and I offered my services uh, to do it uh, to do some surveillance and figure out when the best time to serve this person was. And they passed on that because that's not what they thought uh, we could do. Yeah. So before we um, move on from this, I know you have work for other PIs is, is the next thing here, too. I want to tie it in also with the, the executive protection and, and how surveillance works with that and why it's needed for that. So if you have a potential problem, you've identified somebody that uh, is a threat to whoever it is you're protecting, being able to you know, do those uh, drive-bys, is he home or is, is she home? Like those are one of the things that you would do, right? When you um, identify a threat, uh, you want to be proactive and keep an eye on it. I had a situation where I was working for an, an EP guy um, where uh, they were about to film a movie and there was a someone who was problematic that they wanted to keep an eye on. And, um, you know, that was, that was my role in it. Just, uh, you know, identifying this person, getting a photo of them that they could hand out a photo of this person on the movie set. Uh, if this person, you know, decided to show up to where they were filming, they would know, uh, what this person looked like. So, um, that is another aspect to it. Um, you know, it is part of that, the, uh, executive protection role, and something that you can implement in your services um, if you do that type of work, right? Sure. EP details, I've, I've had situations where we're providing the client with some protection, but at the same time, we have a detail on a, a potential threats residence, whether it's in the same town or um, outside of the area, because we want to know if that person goes mobile and starts heading in, in the direction where the, uh, the protectee is. So yes, occasionally you'll get those cases where you want to get a photograph of possibly the threat ahead of time, but you may also want to know where that person or that threat is while your client is in town. And I get that often in Atlantic City where someone will get a threat um, from someone in that general area. The protectee will come to Atlantic City. We have a detail on the protectee, but at the same time, we're monitoring the threat's house to see if that person goes mobile. So at least we know they're, they're out driving around and potentially could get to our protectee in, in short order. So right, right. that is, again, surveillance. And, and uh, we, we do that quite often. And occasionally you're going to get work for other PIs where they call you up and they ask you to do surveillance work. Um, right. And that would be any of the above that we've gone through. Right. So what is a surveillance assessment? A surveillance assessment is this, a discrete evaluation performed, and it's going to be key, before an investigation to evaluate the likelihood of success of your surveillance case. The assessment is usually conducted covertly and most often is used to set the expectations for the client in advance of the actual case. So to back up just a second, um, what I typically do is if a client calls me up and they order some sort of surveillance, before I accept that detail, I will tell them I need to do an assessment of the case so I can, one, make sure that it's something I'm capable of doing and equipped to do it, have the right personnel, the right equipment, right background. And two, I want to make sure that it's going to be something that we, we uh, can successfully do. And if not, I want to make sure the client is aware and, and have the expectations set up front of the likelihood for of success. So with that, what I'd like to say is the PI word of the day is client expectations. And you're going to hear me use that word throughout this presentation, expectation or client expectations. You want to set your goals going into your case. You don't want to take a retainer and do a substantial amount of work and come back to your client and say, hey, look, uh, we weren't able to do the surveillance because of this, this, and this. Set those expectations ahead of time in advance. And you do that through an assessment 
of the surveillance. So it's it's a pre-surveillance, surveillance if you would, and you wanna go through the, the detail with all the information and make sure that your client is aware of whether that's an attorney or a direct for client case that he or she has a reasonable expectation of what you're going to be able to provide and if you're going to be successful. You can also use this tool and this process to justify or request additional personnel because you're setting that you're setting that information up front that look I can do this but I'm going to need extra personnel I'm going to need extra time or there's a number of different reasons why we may need additional resources in this case money um, time and money to, to be successful. So when is a surveillance assessment needed? Always. And in case you missed that, always. There's not a single case that comes into your shop that you that involves any form of surveillance that you should not be doing some level of assessment before you book that job and take that job and start running, running the case. You always need to do an assessment to set the expectations right up front in the case so that everyone knows what the difficulties are and how we're going to be able to get around them. One of my sayings is there is no impossible surveillance. There's only impossible budgets. And if a client books you to do a job that is a very, very difficult surveillance, the time to identify it as a difficult surveillance is not halfway through the detail when you've gone through one third or one half of the retainer. You need to do that up front in advance so that the client has expectations of what you're able to do. So I break the surveillance assessment up into steps, and I, I call them stages of a surveillance. And I, I would recommend that everyone does this for every case coming in. And I do bill for this. This is not a freebie. I typically will charge $200 to $250 for an, a, secure, a surveillance assessment. And if I do book the job, sometimes I'll back that off uh, of the final fee. Um, but I've had lots of cases where a, a, a client or an attorney will ask me to do a surveillance. I do an assessment. I identify what the problems are uh, and some suggestions how we get around them. And I find out that um, it's just out of budget. And in those cases, I, I've, I've paid for my time um, and I've identified to the client up front that we're not going to be able to meet his or her expectations. And while that may seem counterproductive to from a business standpoint, I've had lots of clients that come back to me, specifically attorneys, and say, you weren't able to do the last job, but you were up front. And you said, uh, here's the reasons why. And ultimately, you saved us money because we didn't spend thousands of dollars to find out that you weren't able to do the surveillance because of the identified difficulties. It cost us a couple hundred bucks and we went another route um, with, with the case. So the first thing I like to do is debrief the client. And this is critical. Um, often you'll get a call from an attorney or possibly a paralegal. And they'll say, I need a surveillance done, and here's the facts in the case. And then you later find out that the attorney's relying on a paralegal who's relying on a receptionist or an intake person, and the information you're getting related to the case is sometimes two or three people old, or, or it's gone to, through two or three folks of um, levels of, uh, of, of debrief before you get the actual information. I like to speak directly to the client and I want to hear right from the client um, and I want to be able to ask the client questions. I can't ask the client questions if the attorney is providing me the information or his or her paralegal or some intake person within the agency is giving me the information. So I find it extremely important and I recommend to everyone debrief the client personally. That can be on a telephone. It does, you know, maybe the, uh, 
the attorney wants to be on the call, and it's probably not a bad thing if the attorney's on the call. You may have some level of attorney-client privilege then because the attorney's on the call. But the key is you want to talk directly to the client, not going through any, any sort of filters or levels. My second step is after I speak to the client, I get the information, I do what's called open source information gathering. And that can be something as simple as Google searches, running a, a database, you know, uh, any of the restricted access databases we have, TLO, IRB, Delpoint, you know, there's lots of them out there, tracers. Um, I use them all. I have every single one of them. And often I'll run multiple searches depending on what type of case that I'm potentially going to be taking on. But you want to do your open source information. Google's a tremendous tool. Um, Google Earth, and I'm not going to bring that into this particular presentation. There's a whole other presentation I do on, on Google Earth, but Google Earth's a great uh, tool to be able to actually, using air quotes again, um, go to that neighborhood and actually see what the neighborhood looks like right from the, the comfort of your desk. So you utilize Google Earth and all the Google-related tools out there and, and all um, the information is available. Uh, Scope Now is a fabulous tool. There's lots of them out there. You want to get this information before you start doing a case. That's what I call open source information gathering. Get as much information about the case as you can. I then sit down and I review that information based upon what the clients told me during my, my question and answer, my debrief or my brief, and what I've been able to find in open source information gathering. I sit down and I, I put that together. And this whole, all these steps, one, two, and three, maybe half an hour. I mean, we're not talking days or, or multiple meetings. I may speak to a client initially for 15 or 20 minutes to get an overview of the case, hit the computer for 15 or 20 minutes, and then sit down and sort of put those pieces together in my mind, taking notes and documenting some things. And then I put that together as an overall picture of what the client, and that could be an attorney or direct to client, what they're asking me to do. I then like to go out and do an in-person survey. Now, you notice that doesn't say in-person surveillance because it is absolutely not a surveillance. It's going to be a survey. And that simply can be driving through the neighborhood or driving past the residents and making sure or, or being sure that what I found on Google Earth or what I found uh, through open source gathering is actually what's there now, that the house that I think is there is actually there or what the house that the client has told me uh, is there has not been uh, remodeled or, or has been torn down and another building's in its place. Go out and do a drive-by. And you can do that on the way to or from work. If it's an extended distance, you're going to have to bill for that and work that into the billing structure. But you need to at least drive through the neighborhood and get some perspective as to what you've been able to learn from steps one and two, putting them together in step three is actually representative of what's going on uh, in this case. Um, sometimes clients will call you to give you information. They haven't been to the house in years. It's an ex-spouse or it's an ex-business partner or it's a former business. They haven't been there in years, haven't been by the place in years, and you find out that the whole, the whole topography has uh, changed and it's not what the client represents it as being or what they think it is. It, it was when they last were at that residence. I then like to go back and debrief the client a second time. Um, and this is a very short phone call because you're going to learn things in steps two and four, gathering your information and your in-person survey driving through the area that maybe you want to follow up on. Um, the client gives you an address and you go out there and find out it's a quad, that there's four apartments there. And the client, client didn't tell you what apartment. And he or she just assumes that somehow you're going to figure that out. Uh, but you want to be able to have that, have the ability to call the client back and say, look, I went by there and I have these four questions about the property. You know, I noticed that it, it's not what I, what you described, it's changed or it's a quadruplex, which apartment they live in, top, bottom, front and back. And there's going to be some follow-up questions. That The second 
debrief in a client is usually very short and is very focused based upon what you've learned in steps, you know, one, one, two, and, and ultimately in, in four. And then finally, I think it's a good practice. I do a final review and a written assessment. Typically, this is just a two-page document, and the front the front page is basically a disclaimer. And the second page, which has the meat and potatoes of, of the assessment, is simply going to have um, what I see as the difficulties in the case and some suggestions that I have maybe to get around those difficulties. And I bill for this. And the reason I produce a final report is you're going to charge somebody money for your assessment. You've got to produce a product. You simply can't make a phone call and say, this is what I found. Um, you have to produce or you should re re produce some sort of written assessment or a final review. Now, some attorneys will tell you, don't do that. And if they don't want you to do that, that's fine. But have them put that in writing that you're not going to produce it. And then you just you know, make a case note that you verbally provided that to the client or the client's uh, counsel. But I like to produce that final uh, review and written report. And that'll include maybe one photograph of the, of the location where I'm going to be doing the surveillance at just to document that. Sometimes your case is going to end right there where be, uh, you've identified um, circumstances that uh, the client can either not control or can't afford to uh, get around. Uh, you won't, they will not, he or she won't have the resources or the attorney says, well, uh, based upon what you found, I don't think this is going to work within the case. And if that's the case, then you move on. But you, you've covered your costs and you've produced a product and, and, you, and the client, again, has expectations before you go out and start working that job as to what the chances of success is going to be on this particular surveillance. And if there are difficulties, how you think you can get around them. Uh, one that comes to mind is uh, there's occasion where they'll, you, they'll want you to do a physical in-person surveillance. And for whatever reason, um, you're not able to obtain a posting position to do a surveillance on that residence. And, you know, there's a number of reasons we can, we could go on all day about reasons why you can't do a surveillance at a location. However, maybe there's a possibility you can put a remote access camera there. So in my assessment, in my review, I'll, I'll point out to the, to the client, um, look, I'm not able to do in-person surveillance, but as an alternative, I am able to place a camera there that we can have remote access to. So you've given that person an alternative, not just saying, I can't do that surveillance. Or you might have to say, look, we can do that surveillance, but it's going to take two folks, two or three technicians, because there's multiple access points to this um, community or this neighborhood, and I can't cover them all. Um, and I would just be guessing if I picked the point and hope that person departed the residence and left uh, from that roadway. So you identify all that, you give solutions and alternatives, and you can you can move on. Often this is used as even, I'm going to say upsell, but you may take a $1,000 surveillance, and after you identify what your problems are and your difficulties, the client authorizes multiple investigators or multiple days, and you've been able to rationalize and uh, request additional resources, and in, most importantly, explained why you need those, what the difficulties are. The time to come back to a client and say, hey, we can't find any place to do surveillance on the house is not halfway through the surveillance. Do it up front and make sure that their expectations are, are reasonable at the very beginning and, and your goals are set from the very beginning. So on the stages of the surveillance, um, a thorough and complete client debriefing before any investigation is conducted is an absolute necessity, should never be overlooked. As we said, it's very, very important you actually speak to the client. If an attorney tells you, look, I don't want you to speak to the client, do your best to say, look, I, I really need to speak to the client because I'm going to be asking questions that possibly you, Mr. Attorney, don't understand why I'm asking. And the one I like to use most often in my, my presentations is I'll ask a client, 
what type of coffee does the does the target dry uh, or, or drink or um, the subject drink? And while that may seem to an attorney, that's ridiculous, Jim. What difference does it make? I want to know if that person drinks Starbucks, Dunkin' Donuts, a local 7-Eleven or a Stop and Rob. I want to know what kind of coffee they drink, because if I'm doing a surveillance and I lose that person and I see on my GPS that there's a star Starbucks a, a block away, I'm going to go right to that Starbucks. And I've had lots of situations where I've lost somebody and I find him in line at Starbucks or parked in a parking lot. Had I not known that he or she drinks Starbucks coffee every morning on the way to work, I wouldn't have known to go back there. And I just would have started basically an expanding grid search. And I probably wouldn't have come across that person else. I was really lucky. In that particular case, I went right there to Starbucks and voila, the person's sitting right there in line and I, I picked up the surveillance and we moved on. There's questions like that you need to ask of the client. Um, I also asked the client, does this person speed? You know, am I going to be following somebody who's got a lead foot or am I going to be following somebody who, who drives like a little old lady and drives below the speed limit? I need to know that. Additionally, I'll, I one of the ones I built into my, um, my, my client debrief is I say, does the subject that we're following have they gotten lots of speeding tickets? And an attorney's gonna say, Jim, what difference does that have? And the difference is if the subject's gotten a lot of, has obtained or been issued a lot of speeding tickets, he or she's probably not paying a lot of attention to what's going on in the roadway. Specifically, they don't see the police parked in, in, the, uh, in the grass medium up ahead, which means they're probably not paying a lot of attention to who's behind them all either. So I might be able to pull a little closer to that person and tuck that surveillance in a little closer because he or she is just more interested in talking on the phone or listening to music than what's going on around them outside of their car. So there's some questions like that that an attorney may not see the relevance to, but as a surveillance technician, there's a whole list of them. I get a dozen of them that I ask um, that will help me as a surveillance technician when I'm following somebody. Okay, you open source information. I'm just going to hit on these uh, real quick. Um, all available open source information outlets should be considered utilized. Come up with a little bang list so that every case that you do, you're pretty much checking off the same box. I like Google, just plain old Google. I like Google Earth. Um, I also do like a realtor.com check because a lot of times you'll see photographs from inside the house um, because it may have been for sale recently or is for sale currently. Uh, run a scope now report so that you know what their social media looks like. Hit up their, you know, their, their Facebook accounts. So you can see what sort of um, lifestyle they're living. Are they an outdoor kind of person? Or are the photo, all their photos inside? I mean, there's lots of information you can get from Facebook from just going and, and hitting their Facebook page up and seeing, you know, what they do for hobbies, you know, how they dress. Are they physically active? Uh, there's lots of things on Facebook that you can do in seconds that'll give you a flavor for what type of person you're dealing with. Your information review. Um, after successful gathering and documenting open source information, a thorough, complete, and objective review should be conducted. Look at all that information you've gathered and, and analyze it, scrutinize it, go through it. Don't, don't short uh, step yourself on this. Look at all the information and take everything into consideration and try to get that whole person view of who you're dealing with or, or what type of neighborhood you're dealing with, what the house is like. Is the neighborhood one that... Um, I'm going to have to have a high-end car to, to be able to blend in. If the houses are worth two or $3 million, I'm not going to be able to show up in my 2013 Kia Optima with 400,000 miles on it and a dent in the door and not uh, attract some sort of scrutiny. I may have to go out and rent a car that's going to fit in that neighborhood. And I'm using the air quotes when I say fit. Um, is it a commercial neighborhood where maybe a commercial vehicle would blend in? Um, in the same token, if, if you're driving a really nice car, like a Corvette or something, you can't go to some neighborhoods and expect to blend in 
in, with a Corvette. So you have to know this ahead of time because if you have to rent a vehicle, obviously that's going to impact your budget. And you need to do that in your, present that in your assessment and say, yes, we can do the surveillance. There's a great place where I can park. However, I'm going to need a vehicle that blends into that neighborhood. And my options are this, one, two, or three. There's also nothing wrong with when you're done your case, running it past someone else in your office, whether it's a surveillance tech or somebody with a higher level of expertise within your office. If you're not a tech guy and you think you want to use some sort of camera, find somebody, maybe somebody within your state association or somebody who works nearby you that you can call and bounce some ideas off. And that goes both ways. Have he or she give them the ability, hey, if you have a question or you just want to kick something back and forth, feel free to call me. But if you have somebody within your office who's your tech, make sure you bring that person into the loop if you're anticipating using some sort of tech in your case. Your in-person survey, uh, front load yourself with as much information as possible before and make that drive-by. You know, sometimes your, your in-person survey may be getting out and walking through the neighborhood opposed to driving through the neighborhood. If I have the time, I, I love walking through the neighborhood. I'll take my little dog and I'll go for a walk in the neighborhood. You can loiter in a neighborhood. You can walk around with a dog, not feel out of place. Nobody will look a second time at you in some neighborhoods, but it gives you the ability to, to really loiter and hang out in a neighborhood and get a flavor uh, for that neighborhood. 15 minutes in a neighborhood um, at any particular time will reveal an incredible amount of information. And as I'm saying that, I'm thinking also, um, if you anticipate a surveillance that's going to be a 7 a.m. to whatever surveillance, make sure when you do your, your survey or your assessment, you're doing it at 7 a.m. Because you want to see what that neighborhood looks like. And again, I'm using the air quotes, what it looks like or the feel of that neighborhood while you're doing your surveillance at the time. If you're going to start your surveillance at 6 or 7 o'clock in the morning, it doesn't do you a lot of good to drive through that neighborhood at 11 o'clock at night. Because everything's going to be different in the morning than at seven or eight or 11 o'clock in the evening. So try to do that sur uh, survey at the same time that you think you're going to be doing most of your surveillance details. Step five, your second debrief of your client. Again, as a second rule, I can't stress it enough. You wanna have the ability to speak to your client first time and second time um, and debrief them with any questions you have that you've developed through your assessment up to that point. Your client may say, oh yeah, I forgot to tell you. Um, that they have a two-car garage. And when we were married, she always parked her car in the garage. The attorney wouldn't know that. And the attorney wouldn't know to ask that. You would be able to ask that because you're the professional. And this is what you do for a living. Your attorney doesn't think that's important. Yet to you, think about it. It's critically important. If I go by that house at seven o'clock in the morning, I don't see my subject's car. Had I known he or she parks in the garage every evening, then I may think that car is in the garage. But Anybody else may just go by and say the car's not there, we missed them, or they left earlier, not realizing they're parked inside the garage. So there's lots of opportunity to get a lot of information if you're speaking directly to the client. Clients will tend to um, give you as little information as necessary. Um, it's really important that you have the ability to ask those follow-up questions based upon what you've developed through steps one through four. You may also find contradictory info to what's been provided. You know, there's lots of cases where I go out and the client tells me, describes a house, describes a pattern of life, a vehicle, and you go out there and it's something totally different. And you have to, you when you're talking to your client the second time, that's when there's some clarity put to that or it's put in, in context to what he or she's told you initially to what you've discovered through steps one through four. And the final assessment is as a best practice, it suggests to memorialize your assessment in written format. And that is billable. That's not a freebie. And I, I stress that often, it is not a freebie. I charge for this. 
Um, and, and I do lots of assessments. I may do four or five a month and maybe two of those will end up where I actually don't do the job because just for one reason or another, it's not one that I'm capable of doing or one that has a low expectation for success, but I've still covered my, my expenditures and my time. So you have to bill for that or you should bill for that. If I get a really good attorney who's a, a, a very frequent customer who sends me a lot of work, yeah, sometimes I'll throw that in for free or I'll work it into the overall billing or I'll do him or her a favor um, and I'll go out and do it. I, I, I'm not going to say, you know, never say never. And you should try to bill for this all the time, but there's going to be situations where you just can't bill for it or you don't want to bill for it. But as a general practice, I bill for this unless it's a very, very good customer that I, I work with all the time. Most importantly, your assessment may be used to justify additional funding or manpower needs at a client, and you're going to be setting those expectations. And this is important here. Remember, clients watch TV and think anybody can do our job and performs tests or tasks that are not legal or even possible. I love this picture here where I, I think everyone I know, Matt does, Matt's got one of those tables in his office where you can move your hands around and all of a sudden you can see you know, everything that person's done and where they've ate breakfast and what they're having for lunch Definitely. and all that. Absolutely. That doesn't, it doesn't exist in the real world. Yeah. But unfortunately, the point of reference for most clients, and unfortunately, some attorneys, is what they see on television. And they think that we have the ability to have this sort of equipment in our office, and, and we can do this sort of thing. You need to set the expectations, and you need to set that as soon as possible going into the case. Let them know what you can, what you can do and what you can't do. Yeah, definitely. Hey, Jim, we're going to, uh, we're going to, uh, wind down here. Um, so, uh, I know, uh, this was great. This, uh, the whole surveillance, uh, assessment here this is a lot of in info and, and you packed it into a short amount of time. So I really appreciate that. Um, and, uh, this was great. Can you give, uh, just a final, uh, parting shot here for folks that are, are doing this work even on the, uh, the EP level, um, sure. the private investigator, and then we'll, uh, wind things down here. So the parting shot is the, the summary is up there. The four, the five, six stages are debrief a client, open source information gathering, information review, in-person survey or survey of the, of the uh, location, your second client debrief and the final review. Don't shortchange yourself. Know what you're getting into it with the surveillance before you get into it. And again, make sure that you're, you set the expectations for your case up front with your client or with the attorney. That is so important. You don't want to do that halfway through or at the end of the surveillance say, look, I wasn't able to get anything and here's why I didn't get anything. Had you told them up front, you maybe would have been able to go a different route. So if anybody ever has any questions, feel free to give me a call. Matt will have my contact information. I love to talk surveillance. This is all I do or mostly what I do. I, I love this sort of stuff. So give me a call sometime and I'll talk to you off on the phone. Yeah, let's plug your podcast too, Jim. Oh, in our podcast, we have uh, PI Magazine, the podcast, and we're launching Surveillance Tech will be coming up pretty soon. It'll be a separate standalone podcast just for surveillance. And, and Matt's got a great podcast, and, and I love his, and we all listen to each other's. Uh, but feel free to, anytime, give us a call, and, and we'll help you out. Jim, this was definitely the easiest interview that I've done. <laughs> I've kind of sat back with a cup of coffee. Uh, but I, I really, uh, I've seen you do this presentation a few times um, at different uh, events, and I, I I wanted to memorialize it because I think there's such great information here and uh, I really appreciate you coming on and agreeing to do this and, uh, you know, making this available for folks um, to learn more about these topics. So uh, if, if you can't find Jim Nanos, you're a crappy investigator. He's out there. Uh, he's got a buddy, Jack Russell, too, that uh, he's a little more difficult to find. 
He is a little bit harder to get hold of. You don't want to get on the phone with him, believe me. Yeah, yeah. So thanks, everybody, for checking this out. And uh, we'll, we'll catch you guys next time on the next show. Take care. A special thank you to Jim for trying this different format with us. We hope you enjoyed it and found it useful. We'll be back next week with our regular show. So we also want to thank Crosstracks, Merlin Locate, IRB, and Investigation Education Consultants for sponsoring our show. So please support our great supporters. We're going to play you out with two more sponsors from Investigator Education Consultants and InvestigatorsToolbox.com. So be sure you use code PIP201836 and save that $20 when you join the toolbox. And you can do that through the app available on all smartphones. And if you have a question or a comment about the show, email Matt at MatthewS at SatellitePI.com and you can find him on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook. We hope to get your feedback so we can bring you the best shows possible. And we'll be back on Monday with a new show. So make sure you tune in and stay safe out there. In 2019, Investigation Education Consultants added a new affiliate in its never-ending quest to provide quality professional investigative training. IEC is now offering certificate courses and investigative training online. Our website, iecoit.com will soon offer a certificate in professional investigation for those interested in entering the investigative field. There'll be standalone investigation classes for those seeking continuing education credits, CEUs, or just interested in taking classes for their own personal or professional interests. The classes currently available are Foundations of Investigation, Legal Investigation, Criminal Investigation, Fraud Investigation, Background Investigation, Interviews and Statements, Skip Tracing Locate, ethics, and report writing. Investigator Toolbox members will receive a 20% discount off the listed price. So visit IECOIT.com. Are you an investigative professional? Did you know you can now find the best private investigator resources using InvestigatorsToolbox.com? It is a resource community built exclusively for licensed investigators and investigative professionals. This is the future of investigative learning, networking, and resource management. You can interact with some of the best investigative minds in the business in our community section. Our private investigator resources also have a robust learning section packed full of free training webinars, audio teachings, and helpful articles. Many teachings offer CLE credit. Our data resources section features over 225 free OSINT resources. This site is also designed to create a private personal resource library for your use when you do research. We have partnered with some of the best investigators and businesses in this industry to provide benefits and discounts to our members. We have over $1,250 worth of discounts and benefits available exclusively to members of the community. For less than 49 cents a day, you can access this amazing resource tool. Download the Investigators Toolbox app available on Android and iOS, or visit our webpage at investigators-toolbox.com. The best private investigator resources and this amazing community are only a few clicks away.